If you have not been here, just to let you know what we're wrapping up this morning, this is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and uh, as a church, we don't follow the church calendar super closely, but we do some of the biggies like Christmas and Easter, so we take four Sundays, and generally we look at some passage or some passages that help us think about what theologians call the incarnation. And if you don't know that term, that, that just means God the Son, the Son of the Father, truly God, fully God, God the Son taking on true, full humanity without sin and not diminishing, still being truly and fully God, but really being a human being, doing that for, for us. Um, so we've slowed way down this Advent, and we've looked at really one part of one verse in this Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. We've been in Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to read this part here again in a little bit in verse 6. We've been looking at these four names that the prophecy was in Isaiah that there would be this child who would come. The child would grow to be a man. This man is further described later in Isaiah. I'm going to refer to some of those references this morning. But he will have these names, and we're going to look at the last of those names this morning. Uh, before I read this passage, my, I don't know about where you live, but my, my neighborhood is presently in a Christmas decoration arms race. And uh, I didn't think after last year there could be more inflatables, but there can, and there are. And uh, just all the usual stuff, there's stuff hanging from trees, there's lights, some people went the full deal and just every gable has lights and they're putting us all to shame. And uh, there's uh, reindeer and inflatables. I've also noticed some people will just use a giant word among their decorations. Like in our neighborhood, I can think of one place where it just says joy in just giant all caps in the yard, in the yard joy. The, I think the two biggest words, at least for Christmas decor, are joy and the other would be peace. Peace. And uh, right now in the hay big house hanging from our mantle, the stockings are hanging from letters that spell peace on our, on our mantle. What do we mean by that? There's a lot of talk of peace, and this being a time of peace at Christmas. What, what kind of peace do we mean? Uh, if, if you have been around, you know I love A Christmas Carol. I'm rereading it right now. I thought about this thing that, that Scrooge's nephew said to Scrooge. I don't know if you remember this scene, if you've seen it or read it, but Scrooge's nephew Fred comes to visit him and to invite him to Christmas dinner, and that gets completely shut down and Scrooge is so mean to him and says that, you know, much, much good Christmas has ever done to you. And here's what his nephew said in return, uh, at least this is part of it. I am sure I have always thought of Christmas time, when it has come around, as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. The only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good and it will do me good, and I say, God bless it, which is awesome. Uh, and I, I, that's as fine a description I know of of the feeling 
of Christmas at its best. And you may have had some, I hope you have some taste of that this year. It may be that in your school or in your workplace or maybe some even little group initiative in your neighborhood, there was some sense of doing for others and uh, neighbors seeing each other, co-workers talking a little bit more or eating and drinking together more or raising money to to, to give it to someone who's under-resourced. I hope there's been a bump of that at the end of the year, and that's great. Is it big enough for all that we're distraught about? I mean, if it's between good vibes and bad vibes, I'd rather have good vibes. But the sort of good vibes that Fred describes, is that enough for war and grinding poverty? and homelessness, and all the people that are in the ICU right now, and all the families that are worried sick about them right now. Is it enough? When, when I read this last name, I think it, it can be easy at this time of year to hear peace in terms of sort of Christmas, good feelings, and you know, with hopes that we all get along better in the coming days. And when God says peace, He means something so much bigger and so much richer than that. It might overlap with that, but it's so much bigger. So let's look at, one more time, Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, everything is clear to You. You see us and know us more clearly than we see and know ourselves. And Father, You know that this is a room that's very much a mixed bag. And maybe every single one of us is a mixed bag. And many in this room could say, like the man said to your son, that uh, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. So Father, with all that we come, whether it's fear about the holidays or fear of family that we'll see or anxiety about money, disappointment with ourselves for, for what we thought we would have done this year that we didn't accomplish, or comparison, or whatever, we pray that you would come near and really use your word in our lives, turn us towards you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If uh, if you have not been here while we've been looking at these names, something that we've said, I think just about every week that we've looked at this passage, we've said what we're trying to do is think about Not how do we initially hear these names, but to think about how would the first recipients of Isaiah's prophecy, how would they hear these names? How would an Israelite in the 700s or so B.C. hear these names? 
Uh, like in the first name that we looked at, Wonderful Counselor, we talked about what, what would a wonderful counselor be to them in their world. And one of you emailed me uh, afterward and said, thank you for the sermon. I'm glad to know that Jesus is not just like an excellent life coach. And I say that with no disrespect to life coaches or practicing counselors or therapists or whatever, or have esteem for that. But it's to say that a counselor in that context is different than what we generally call a counselor. And I want to think about that in terms of the Prince of Peace. Again, we hear that. Our mind tends to go sort of to peace on the mantle, peace on the Christmas card, peace in the decoration. And I want to think about how would this sound to the Israelites who received it? So let's think about two things for, for those Israelites. Let's think about a connotation. In other words, when they heard Prince of Peace, where might their mind go? What might be an earlier version of a Prince of Peace that they're familiar with? So a connotation. And then let's, let's think about a clarification. What do we mean by peace? When God says this child will come to be named Prince of Peace, what does God mean by peace? By peace. What is peace? So let's think first about the connotation. When you look, at, and again, this is just two verses of a larger prophecy, but when you look at this prophecy, what are some things that are said? Okay, first off, this child is going to be a king. And a particular kind of king, because he's going to sit on a particular throne. He's going to sit on the throne of David. Now, without preaching three sermons at once, A while after David, not too long after David, Israel became a divided kingdom. But it wasn't that way under David. That was sort of the golden era of, man, God's man on the throne of this one monarchy. Well, this child is going to sit on the throne of David. Okay, so throne of David. And he's a prince. He's prince of peace, meaning The obvious connotation would be, uh, I guess, the son of a king. The term that's used here can mean official or somebody that administers things, but it can be the actual prince who's the son of the the king, who makes things happen. Throne of David, prince, uh, of the increase of his government, there'll be no end. In other words, this won't be a static monarchy, but his rule and his impact will get bigger and bigger. He'll have more global impact. He won't just impact Israel. And this is maybe the most important part, peace. Now, if you were an Israelite and you thought, okay, what does a prince of peace look like who sits on the throne of David, who's a prince, who has increasing global impact, and rules during a time of peace, I have to believe that where your mind would go would be Solomon. Now David, King David, had a slew of children and a slew of sons. But the one prince who followed him and sat on his throne right after him was Solomon. Uh, Now when we read our English Bibles, we tend to think that Everybody, maybe in that day, pronounced these names in these places the way we pronounce them. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes it's not. It's not the case with Solomon. We say Solomon. In the Hebrew Bible, his name is Shlomo. And that's still a name that's used in, in, in Jewish culture, Shlomo. Now, you don't have to 
Maybe the only Hebrew word that a lot of this room would know is the Hebrew word for peace. And it's still a greeting in Hebrew-speaking places and in Jewish culture. What's the, what's, the, what's the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom. All right, very crowd participation. I like that. Christmas, it's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> shalom. He's the prince of Shalom. And you can see how his name, Shlomo, is rooted in Shalom. He's a man of peace. And here's a little window into, into what that means. King David, before he died, while he was still king, he wanted to build the temple. I mean, up to that point, the tabernacle, the, the, the most ornate tent in Israel, was, was still in existence. But, he, but when David established his monarchy, set up shop in Jerusalem on the throne, he wanted to build a temple. And God sent a prophet to David to say this, your desire to do that is good. That's a good thing that you wanted to do that. But you may not build my house because you're a man of war. You've got blood on your hands. Now, it wasn't blood on his hands from crimes. It was because God called him to be a warrior king. He said, your son's not going to have that calling. Your son is going to be a man of peace, and he can build my temple because he's a man of shalom. Solomon, Shlomo, be a man of peace. Uh, the descriptions of Solomon's reign, if you've never read them, they're amazing. The extent of his wealth, the wisdom that God gave him, which was so incredible when people experienced it, the word got out and dignitaries from other nations would travel to have meetings with Solomon to pick his brain, to ask him the hardest questions about life and culture, and maybe what they, his, their challenges as governments. And here's the amazing thing. When Solomon's doing that, he's not like giving life hacks from Solomon.com. He, I mean, he is dispensing wisdom that God gave him, you know, thinking God's thoughts after him. It's the wisdom that you find in Proverbs. And he's doing that not just with Israelite impact, but global impact. Uh, incredible wealth and no war. No war. Um. It must have been amazing to have lived in Israel under Solomon's reign before his decline. He did not end well. But it must have been amazing to be there in person during the best of it. You know, I was trying to think of an American connotation. And uh, something that came to mind was an, an older relative of mine. She's passed away now. But I remember one time her saying, she was talking about when she was in high school. And she said, oh, and Brian, it was during the Eisenhower years. So 53 to 61, I don't know exactly when she fell in there, but it's, you know, it's post-World War II. It's right after the Korean War. And it's you know, post-World War II, boom. No big massive war that the United States is in. And, and just kind of a boom time in her life. And she said, oh, we had so much fun. And I bet it was fun for her. Knowing her, I bet she had great fun. Um, as a white woman. But that was just right there in the Jim Crow South with Jim Crow culture. So for her, it was really fun. There were a lot of people during that time that it was not fun for. Uh, it makes me think about Solomon because you read the descriptions, you go like, man, incredible wealth, incredible prominence, incredible wisdom, I, you know, absence of attack, awesome. Uh, 
sometimes we don't think about who was Solomon's reign not great for? Did you know that Scripture says he has... How many wives do you think he had? Pick a number and multiply it by 10. And you're probably still not there. The biblical account says he had 700 wives, 300 concubines. I'm sure that was riddled with joy and connection. And I'm sure it was great to be one of his like hundreds of children that may see him, I don't know, once a year. We, we, we tend to not talk about them. And, and, and here's another little window. When, um, when Solomon's reign ended and his prince, his son Rehoboam took the throne, this, this, sort of, um, this sort of constituency of Israel came to him and said, look, your father just worked us. If you'll back it down, your people will love you. But can, you, you know, can, we, can, we, can we dial it back some? And he ignored that request to his, to his detriment. But what does that tell you? Is that, hey, as Solomon's building the temple, as Solomon's building a house that's bigger than the temple and took longer to build than the temple, as he's doing all these other projects, somebody had to do all this stuff, and sometimes their lives were very hard. The Israelites had a mental picture through knowing their history and their scriptures of what a prince of peace was somewhat like. They had connotation of a prince of peace, but he did not get them there all the way. And, and, and some of you have heard me say this, but I'll say this before going to the next point. When you read the account of the kings, especially the good ones, and they're not many, but when you read the account of the good Israelite kings, Judean kings, or really just Judean kings, they'll almost get there, and then there'll be a wrinkle. And then the bad kings are so bad and so atrocious. When you read the account of the kings, you're left with this feeling of, can somebody come and get this right? Can somebody come and not just approximate being a ruler of shalom? Can somebody nail it and really bring the shalom that God's people crave? But I think Solomon would be the closest connotation. Now, we still have this question of a clarification, and the clarification is, what is shalom? What is the peace that is needed? And let's think about this. Let's think about what would that be for an Israelite but then let's think about us. Let's, let's do think about this room. What, how do we tend to think about the peace I crave? For an Israelite, I have to believe that the number one shalom you want and crave is the absence of war. The absence of war. And if you've been here and heard me do some intro about Isaiah, a big theme in the prophet Isaiah is that there is a coming dominant Assyrian Empire. Listen to this briefly. This is from the chapter before this one. This is in, from Isaiah chapter 8. And God is telling the people, the Assyrians are coming. And He compares the Assyrian ruler to being like a river that just swells and floods over its banks and destroys everything. Listen to this. Behold, the Lord is bringing up against them. Now them is... The Israelites, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, 
mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. That is one of the prophecies of the Assyrian empire coming. Especially after you just heard that oracle, when you heard Prince of Peace, surely as an Israelite you would think, no more war. And by the way, Israel then and Israel now is not just an A for A comparison, but because of where it still sits, you probably know your geography enough to know that it is a, an important feature of Israel that it is surrounded by its enemies. Peace would be absence of war and threat. What about for us? Um, by God's grace, we're not living in a time of war like right outside that door. No one's facing combat this afternoon. What do we tend to mean by peace? I would say often what we mean is the absence of conflict. And you might be thinking about that even more going into the holidays, maybe approaching a time where you're going to be with family that you don't see very often, and maybe you're bracing for potential conflict. So peace would be the absence of conflict. But is the absence of conflict always the answer? And all the Enneagram 9 said, it absolutely is. Uh, let, let me use one example. Think about somebody who is addicted to alcohol. And if that is your struggle or has been your struggle, I'm not using this example to talk down to you or be patronizing. I'm just trying to use a real-life example. If somebody is addicted to alcohol... They often acutely desire absence of conflict. So let me have alcohol. Let me have as much alcohol as I want. Let me either drink it in the privacy of my own home, where I'm not maybe ashamed or I'm not going to embarrass myself, or let me drink it with the people with whom I like to drink. And let there be no lectures from my family. And let there be no negative consequences to me socially or at my workplace. I mean, not do something that embarrasses me and, and hurts a relationship. If I can have all that, if I can have no conflict, that would be ideal. Is that ideal? That's a recipe for that person damaging himself or herself and damaging the people around them. So is the absence of conflict really shalom? Not always. And by the way, don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus himself said this. Look at the passage under, under our passage from Isaiah. This is from the Gospel of Matthew. Now, this, th these are surprising words if we believe that Jesus fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah and is the Prince of Peace. Jesus says, quote, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Does that strike you as an odd thing for the Prince of Peace to say? Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And some of you may have experienced this, that maybe, maybe you grew up in a family that did not know Jesus, and you did not grow up around the Bible but God brought you to Himself, and He gave you saving faith in Jesus, and you trusted Him. And on the one hand, your heart sung for joy when you found what you'd always been looking for, but then all of a sudden there were these new tensions with your family. 
But what about us? What about how we've always, what about how we've always lived? Or do you think you're better than us? Or maybe you felt it with coworkers. Or maybe that happened in friendships. But Jesus acknowledges that in the gospel. Do not think that I came to just make everybody horizontally get along better. I did not come to bring that. In fact, I came to highlight division. What is the shalom that we really want? And I want, to, I want you to think about this kind of in, in two ways. First off, when we think about peace, especially like Christmas peace, we tend to think horizontally. There is this thing in me and a thing in you that we showed up with. And until it is dealt with, we don't really need to focus on any other piece. And the thing in me is not having peace, showing up, sabotaging peace, not just horizontally, but vertically. And that this is not the relationship I've got to take care of first. This is the relationship I've got to take care of first. And there's nothing I can do to manufacture that peace. If I quadruple my Bible reading and my prayer and my giving and my volunteerism and my cheerfulness, I cannot manufacture it. And if this is your first time to come and this at all interests you, please keep coming because this is what we talk about all the time. Is that when we could do nothing to get that peace, and I don't mean subjective peace, I don't mean peace feelings. Objective peace. You can feel great with God and not have objective peace with Him from His perspective, which is the only perspective that matters. I can't manufacture it, but God can give it. When God says through the prophet Isaiah, this child is going to have the name Prince of Peace, here's part of what he's saying. He is going to do the thing that you cannot do for yourself. He is going to secure not just like a ceasefire, but shalom and fullness and connection and welcome between God and man. You know, I told you that this child, he, he shows up, that carpet, he shows up in, um, in other parts of Isaiah. Listen to this description of him later in the same prophecy of Isaiah. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now, for some of you, what you just heard me say was, okay, got it. So we can't manufacture peace between God and us. And the main thing is between God and us. And Jesus comes, and through his life, and his death, and his resurrection, if you believe in him, he gets you that peace. Yes, absolutely. That is the core of the good news. And we're still left with all these ICUs and all this poverty and all this homelessness and all these graves and all this addiction and all this depression and all this disconnection and all this fragmentation. So what about that? 
And this is where we need to really see what God is saying when he says this child will be the prince of Shalom. Here's what he's saying. Yes, he will do what you cannot do for yourself to bring Shalom between me and you. But he will come and he will fix and make new everything that undermines Shalom in this earth. A couple of weeks ago, we had lessons and carols, and we've been doing these for over a decade. And it doesn't always work this way, but we have the, you know, it's just such a great simple service, scripture readings and songs. There's one scripture reading that more than any other reading often makes the reader get choked up. And it's from Isaiah. It's two chapters after these names. I won't read the whole thing, but here's the prophecy. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. What is being described there? What is being described there is a shalom that's even beyond, I now know that I have peace with God. I now know that He has healed me of my sin and my guilt. It includes that. But this is saying the work of the Prince of Peace is to undo everything everything cursed on this earth. All fragmentation. All loss. All death. Everything that is twisted and tainted. All bloodshed. All of it. To undo it and give us earth. Do you want to spend eternity on a science fiction planet? It's like purple and has diagonal trees and has no bearing on your life here? Or do you want earth? We want earth. And it's amazing to live on the earth. It's amazing actually to live in this part of the earth. It is an amazing privilege to live in the United States. And it is an amazing privilege to live in Greenville, South Carolina right now. And it's still broken. You're feeling it right now in your lives in different ways. You feel it in your neighborhood. You feel it in the news. On the way here this morning, I come over a bridge. There's like four or five trucks and ambulances and just wreckage of four or five cars. I don't know if someone died. But whether or not you believe in that, in Jesus, if you're in that wreck, do you have shalom in that moment? The work of Christ is to secure shalom in body and soul, not just for the people of God, but shalom in a new earth. And that might sound like science fiction or fairy tales to you. It is what the Scriptures say. And so, a couple of thoughts before we go. Thought number one, quit I'm saying this in love, and I'm saying this to myself. Quit looking somewhere else for shalom.
Christmas can't manufacture your peace. It cannot carry that freight. Your family and my family cannot manufacture our shalom, and they feel the pressure that we put on them to do so. We can't do it for them, and they can't do it for us. And if your house has now been renovated and decorated for Christmas, and you have fretted over it, I hope it's awesome. It can't give you shalom. It can't. It can be beautiful and a blessing. It cannot give you the real peace that our hearts crave. The church can't. That new building won't. Jesus Christ can. And we don't fully taste that shalom yet. But it bursts in when you believe. And He gives you fullness of life, abundance of life, the forgiveness of your sins, connection with, I'll use Jesus' language, His Father and ours. But a day is coming, if you believe in Christ, when you'll live in a world of shalom. Here's the second thought. Thinking about Christmas decoration. You know what's another theme of Christmas decoration that we don't talk about a lot? I mean, we know reindeer, Christmas tree, lights, standard. But you know what shows up? I see it over and over. There's a card sitting right off our kitchen right now from a friend that has this on the front of it. A standard Christmas decoration is a Christmas village. You know what I'm talking about? Like we don't really talk about it. We just send pictures of it to each other. It's not a farm, but it's not a city. It's a town with like streets and houses. No gigantic houses, no mega condo developments, just houses of humane size and shops and people and streets. No law enforcement. No graves. No ambulances. No homeless men. And here's the funny thing. Christmas comes and goes, and, but if you look through children's books, that village keeps showing up. Why do we keep drawing this picture? Because we want there to be a place that is like this earth, and not like this earth. And you know what we're doing? We're showing we're homesick. If you entrust your life to Jesus Christ, you will find that He is the Prince of Peace. He will take you home. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we... On the one hand, want you to tarry because we want many men and women and children to come to know you, find that you are the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the wonderful Counselor. We also ask that you would come. Come again, come in your second advent and make all things new. Bring your people home. Thank you for securing the shalom 
for which you made us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.